Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. With Benelin on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, two health topics that we tend to shy away from are on the show today. Elaine Crowley is probably best known for her work on Virgin Media Television, where she's currently presenting Ireland AM at the weekends. And today she'll join me to talk about how she and her sister Maggie have recorded a series of YouTube videos about living with depression and how to start small conversations that could make a massive difference. And Ray Cleary was part of a Men's Shed Roadshow recently which talked about men's health and he shared his experience of prostate cancer with the group. And today he'll talk to me about why men don't talk about it more. And Jason Brennan is a psychotherapist who's provided training and coaching for a wide variety from large corporate companies, military and emergency services and in the field of sports. His new book, written with Brent Pope, is called Win, Proven Strategies for Success in Sport, Life and Mental Health. And Jason will join me in studio to talk about the key skills to increase resilience and well-being. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I couldn't go a step further without mentioning the Alive and Kicking hike, which took place last weekend in the Dublin mountains. We had Elaine from Shulin and Cara from hikepsych.ie joining us. And everyone who came along was just amazing. It was a very early start. We were to meet at 7am so we could hike and then watch the sun come up and People just played a blinder. I arrived to the car park early at 6.45 and to say I was surprised to find it almost full would be an understatement. I just couldn't believe it. Everyone there with their head torches shining away like little glittering stars. And Elaine had said to me when we were talking about the idea that a group of around 30 is is kind of ideal because it helps with the mingling any larger and it just gets a bit more challenging for everybody to talk to each other. And do you know what? She was she was right. We had a little more than 30, but lots of people had come on their own and everybody chatted and mixed and shared if they wanted to and got stuck in. And I absolutely loved it. Everyone had come for a different reason. One was trying to kick long COVID and prove that they can be fit again. Another I was chatting to was in the middle of an alcohol few weeks and it seemed like a good thing to do on a hangover free weekend day. One was feeling pretty low in life and and wanted to give something different a go, meet new people and get out in nature. And it was incredible to hear the stories, which just happened one on one. You'd stand beside someone and sort of say, how are you? What brought you here? And of course, the stories that were shared will remain private. I don't want anyone listening to think I'm going to out any of them. But it comes down to the power of human connection and it always continues to impress and surprise me. I don't know how it happened, but we also dodged that torrential rain that continued Pretty much from when we got back into the car for the next four days, the sunrise played ball and it was great. And I do plan on doing lots more events in the new year. So I hope to get out around the country and meet some more of you then. And in other news, I hosted a seminar over the summer about skin cancer and I learned in it about white moles, which are worth getting checked out. And I've noticed one over the last couple of months and I got my dermatologist appointment earlier in the week and she feels it needs a biopsy to rule anything out, which is very simple procedure that is happening next week. And it was just a reminder to me that there are lots of people going through much worse, especially at this time of year. And 
your health truly is your wealth. I'm absolutely fine feeling very confident about it all. All I can do is take each step and see what happens at each. But I really feel lucky that I learned that information during the summer that made me check it out in the first place. I will keep you posted and all the best to you if you are going through something health wise too. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, the Irish Men's Shed Association has partnered with Ipsen Ireland to launch a nationwide roadshow series, Shed Some Light on Prostate Cancer. The goal of the roadshows is to encourage more conversations among men about personal experiences, concerns and management of prostate cancer. Ray Cleary was a facilitator at one of the events, sharing his experience with his local shed group. And he joins me in studio now. Well, Ray, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. So how did you feel about being a facilitator at an event like that? Well, in a sense, I was very pleased to do it because I have prostate cancer myself and I've come through the the journey of it. Um, and I've known for a long time that men don't like talking face to face. They talk better shoulder to shoulder. Uh, so if you really want to get a man talking, bring him for a drive in a car and he'll start talking. And for that reason, uh, I was happy to facilitate a talk and share my experiences with prostate cancer just to try and break the mould and get, and get the men talking about prostate cancer. And when you had prostate cancer in the lead up to that diagnosis were you falling into that stereotype were you talking about health issues with people around you no no I wasn't Um, and in fact prostate cancer uh, for me anyhow in my experience uh, I didn't know I had it it was a it was a standard uh, blood test by my GP who suddenly saw one of the key markers uh, change and 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 grow up and that triggered uh, his concern Um, and so I was sent for a whole series of tests and and, uh, CT scans and so on Uh, but I never felt anything I never knew I was sick I would never have known Uh, and I went right through the whole process without ever really feeling any any problems the treatment in fact was a bit (laughs) more of a concern than than the actual cancer. So I would never have known except uh, my GP spotted it in a, in a standard blood test. And that was one of the objectives I had, was to try and get men to go and have a blood test and ask uh, that uh, uh, GP look at the PSA, which is the key marker for prostate cancer. And even I would have thought it's a physical exam for, for prostate. Do you think that's what puts men off, that they don't well, think it could be done by a blood test? Well, the blood test, uh, now to be fair, because I'm not a medical person, but there's a number of reasons why your PSA marker can go up. So when uh, my GP saw that, he then wanted the old finger in the, in the uh, glove test, digital uh, test, uh, because that's a double, that's a double check. And it only lasts two or three seconds. But be surprised how many jokes and how many men are so nervous of, of that. And it helps the doctor then to... It's a, it's, a, it's another check uh, 
that there is something there uh, relating to prostate cancer. Uh, and then he then puts you forward, or she puts you forward for a series of MRIs and, and uh, CAT scans and so on. And then you're, you're, you're put forward to a, uh, a medical team who, who assess the, all the findings. And do you think that's the, the, the issue, that it is something uncomfortable for a moment? I'm, I'm kind of comparing yes. it in my mind yeah. with the female smear. It's mm. not mm. your favourite five minutes of yeah. your life, but it's something you do. And it's something we would openly talk about over a cup of coffee. Mm. I must book that. Did you get one? Where did you go? We're quite comfortable talking about that. I wonder, is it because of the the menstrual cycle that we're all quite open about yeah. the workings of the female body? Men don't really have that same equivalent, do they? No, they don't. And, and that's why they shy away from it. I mean, uh, there's even comedy shows on Netflix about uh, people. Michael Douglas, for example, in his programme, makes a big joke about it. Uh, so there is that embarrassment. Um and there shouldn't be. I mean, it only lasts a couple of seconds. And uh, after that, other than uh, some um, tests that may involve uh, that again, the digital examination, that's it. But men just shy away from it. Now, the treatment can have side effects that men are uncomfortable talking about. Loss of uh, libido. Uh, I felt that I began to understand hot flushes, for example. And uh, with my wife and my elder daughter, who's a nurse, we had some fun over that uh, because I never really appreciated what uh, the menopause was doing to Patricia. But during the treatment that I was getting, I experienced brain fog, hot flushes, um, gazing out a window, not really realising why. Uh, so there was all those sort of things because your testosterone levels are being dropped. So, uh, as somebody would say, that my feminine side was coming out stronger. And that's an unusual feeling. Well, we'll take you into the sisterhood, Ray. You're more than welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get jump for that. <laughs> Tell me about the Men's Shared Association then. When did that become a, a part of your life? Well, 2017, I retired in 2016. And I suppose when you retire initially, you have a sort of a honeymoon period, if you, if you like. There's that holiday you always wanted, there's that job you wanted to do in the house and so on. But after about six months, I found that I was meeting myself on the way back. And I, I missed company. I missed talking to a team and being involved with people. Uh, and luckily, um, a local county councillor had spotted a, that a, there was an awful lot of retired people in our particular general area. And uh, he contacted the uh, Irish Men's Shed Association and we began to, we held a public meeting and I thought I was going to be the only one there when I went up to it in the community hall and there was nearly 40, pe- 40 men were there. So that's what started the, the men's shed, our men's shed, the Fairhouse men's shed. Uh, sports and um, golf and that sort of thing, walking and talking and telling lies and big <laughs> stories and all that sort of thing. You know? um, 
so that was that that was the start of it and it was great to be uh great to be able to meet people and as i said uh, men are better doing something and and talking than talking face to face so when you go for a walk down the Dada Valley or whatever you'd be chatting about football and leading into all sorts of things and so that's that's what uh, Men's Shed was And how deep do the conversations go? Like does health concerns come up? Does relationship issues come up? Does worrying about your kids come up or does it all stay in the realms of did you see the game on Saturday? Well certainly the first year <laughs> uh, until you get to know the people and so on but one of the good things about the Irish Men's Shed Association itself was that it always had a very strong um, men's health and well-being uh, section they always were pushing that so so it was coming in in dribs and drabs about weight and you know alcohol and all the usual sort of things uh, and now they're starting to encroach on things like uh, prostate cancer. So um, I suppose when you when men become friends or colleagues, and uh, we don't mix each other families, and that it, it stays very much just the men talking. Uh, it helps, and and that's how it starts to flow. So how did it feel then at this roadshow event to sort of be standing, facilitating a discussion and talking about your own personal health journey? Well, the rationale was the key. Um, I started off by saying that I wanted to talk about prostate cancer and my experience of it. And I had a big crowd. We had about 25 men at, at, the, at the session. Uh, and I just spoke honestly and from from my experience uh, of what had happened and, uh, you know, talking about what it's like to be caught out trying to find a toilet in the COVID period, which wasn't fun, um, and stuff like that. And, and there's a bit of uh, black humour, I suppose, in it as well. Uh, but I got the, the men were interested in the story. And when I'd finished talking, um, two other men started to talk about their experience. And there are a number of different uh, sides to prostate cancer. Some people can have it uh, harder than others. Um, and that, all that started to get shared. And, and also, there's a partner that gets caught in all of this too, because, like I said... Uh, uh, depending on on what treatment you're 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 getting, your testosterone is could be dropping, and that has an effect, and all that sort of thing. So, uh, we invited partners to come along to the talk, but uh, it might have changed the dynamic. But there wasn't any, there wasn't any at it. But I'll try and get some at the next meeting. So you very much see this as the the start of of something of kind of breaking down more barriers. I think so because. Fortunately, we had a coffee and some uh, biscuits and things after the meeting uh, in the community centre. And that's when the men really started to talk to each other as they were sitting around tables. Uh, so I think this thing might take a... It'll be a slow thing, but I, I believe once you break through the ice, men, men will start to share. I love that, Ray. Mm. Um, how is your health now? <laughs> 
It's good. It's good. It's uh, the, my consultant is very happy with the results. He, uh, I get checked every six months, and they're making sure that the testosterone levels are coming back, and uh, the effects of all the treatment now has started to fade. So I'm, I'm back. I'm not fog bound anymore, and I'm happy out. Amazing. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and to hear your story. And thank you for being so open and honest. Ray Cleary, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for the opportunity. Coming up after the break, Elaine Crowley on the pivotal role family and friends play in helping the people they love with depression. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Ireland has one of the highest rates of mental illness in Europe and it's estimated that approximately 150,000 people per year are living with severe depression. And yet 47% of Irish adults have admitted they don't feel equipped to have a conversation with a family member or a friend they suspect might be suffering. With that in mind, Janssen have launched their Talking Depression campaign, including the little book of big conversations with suggestions on where to start. And on their YouTube channel, they've released a series of videos with well-known TV presenter Elaine Crowley and her sister Maggie. And Elaine joins me in studio now. Elaine, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you have spoken publicly about depression. This isn't the first time, but this is a very different, very personal insight into you and your precious sister. How did you feel about the whole project when asked? And I, I'm very passionate about raising awareness for mental, mental illness and particularly uh, for depression. But I think it's always been from the point of view of the person suffering from depression or, or their experience and their lived experience. But I think this is... This was a different twist in that it took into account how difficult it can be for the family members and the loved ones of of people who are suffering and how to broach it with them Um, because it's a really difficult thing to talk about. If you think somebody's not quite themselves or they've gone down a path that is quite, uh, quite difficult and challenging, trying to bring it up with somebody is really, really different, difficult. And especially if you love that person as well and to be quite honest, you might get the head bitten off you for even suggesting it. So I think it's that the, the book we're talking about, the little book of big conversations, it's a great little toolkit and it kind of gives an insight into what that person might be thinking. And it gives kind of step by step guidelines to the person who wants to bring it up because it's a very difficult subject to broach. What about Maggie herself then? How did she feel about you're well used to the camera? Um, how did she feel about it? Well, I'm well used to the camera, but I'm not comfortable, as you can probably guess, being the other side of the chair. <laughs> I do the interviewing. I'm not the interviewee ever. Same, um, totally so I don't like it's way outside my comfort zone. I'm not in control and I don't like it any little bit. But with Maggie, she's, to be honest, she's a pro. Like she puts me to shame when she's talking about it. She's very eloquent uh, at talking about it. And she, I suppose, because there's only two years between us and we've grown up together. She knows me like the back of my hand and to get it from her perspective, I, I it was, she knows what she's talking about and some of it was hard for me to listen to, but nonetheless a very important, um, um, an important story to share because it's not just about me. I mean, anyone who, who suffers from any illness, it's got a domino effect on people around them. And I think Maggie was no exception there and she, she shared her story very well as you'll see in the videos. Oh, the videos are absolutely beautiful and as you say, it was difficult to listen to but sometimes it's important to have those moments documented and it's quite special for you to have mm. had that opportunity together. And you speak so honestly in the video about from childhood, always growing up with this Melancholy. It was just something that was always there. Yeah. And I didn't really know any different. I mean, from when I was really 
young. There's there's three girls that are kind of clustered together of my massive family of 10. So there's Mag is two years older than me. Then there's myself, there's Lillian and there's only 18 months between me and Lillian. But Mag and Lil would be off around the place um, playing Barbies and doing all the little girly things that girls do. And I'd kind of be stuck in the corner of the book avoiding people like the plague. And I just thought that was the way I was. But I suppose in hindsight, they knew to leave me alone if I was like that. Whereas I just thought it was the way I should be. But looking back, I mean, the, all the signs were there that just I was born, born a little bit... Um, not, not as happy as the rest of the little bunnies around the place. Yeah, and as you say, as a kid, you don't have that uh, awareness. It is mm. just who you are. But it did get much harder as you got older. And Maggie spoke about you arriving to work. I mean, and I, I've seen you in, in action as everybody has. And it's not an easy job to do. It takes a huge amount of personality and energy. And then you'd go home and sleep until you had to yeah. get up and do it all over again mm. the next day. Nobody would have known that, Elaine. I kind of fake it till you feel it. Um yeah, and it took all my energy to get out of bed and do my actual job because you don't have a choice. I mean, you, 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 I, I had to get up. You have to pay the rent at the end of the day. I needed a job and I needed to stay in it. And I think as well as that, I'm always mindful and even back then that it's different. Perhaps that's more on me, but I felt if you, it's different to take sick leave if you're having a mental health issue than a physical issue because if you've something physically wrong with it, oh, stay in bed, get better. That attitude really doesn't well didn't uh, at the uh, back then exist when it came to mental health but yeah and I all oh, smiles jazz hands go in do the job as I was producing a lot of the time as well so producing presenting and then I go home and it's not even a physical tiredness it was just a mental exhaustion and I just literally collapse like that for for a few hours and then when you're doing that it's kind of like it's a bit of a Vicious circle, really, because once you start doing that, you're isolating yourself a little, a little bit more every day, and it just gets worse and worse and worse until your your own little world. So my world was basically: I go to work and I go home, and that was it. And then there's the awareness of feeling guilty that you're not happy or that you're a burden on your family, and that's part of what the videos talk about, that you're not talking to them then because you're conscious you've already done it. I don't know how many times and they want you to talk, but you don't. And that just becomes like a a, a cycle. You, you, I didn't really want the it to be contagious. You feel like your misery sometimes is contagious and the guilt of dragging other people down. And I know myself, I wouldn't have the patience with someone like me Um that's just my person. I'm not my sister Maggie. I, I'm I'm not great. I've, I've I've certain skills, but I wouldn't have that level of of understanding and compassion. So I can only imagine what it was like for pe- people around me. So I would feel, and I still do to this day, feel really guilty if I moan too much or I talk about it too much, which is ironic considering what I'm doing here. But uh, 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 like there is that awful sense of dragging everybody else because everybody has their problems. I'm aware that everybody has their problems. From the outside looking in, my life isn't that bad at all at all. And then there's a guilt of experience, depression, guilt of feeling bad about it, guilt of contaminating other people with their misery. It's just a never ending spiral. So, I mean, yeah, it, it's it never, never goes away. And then there was a time where you deleted numbers from your phone so that you wouldn't be burdening people, but you didn't delete Maggie's. No, well, I would have blocked a lot of and deleted a lot. And like for one, at one stage, I didn't go home for eight months. And if you know me, how close I am to my family, even my mother, I didn't visit her for that length of time. I stayed in Dublin, but Mag's number was always there because I didn't want anyone to talk to me. But I think she's quite matter of fact. And she's very, I think because that's maybe what drew me to her. She was 
in the medical field as well. She's a nurse. Um, she particularly works in, in bereavement, uh, uh, infant loss and bereavement. So I think that she kind of just, well, this is it. This is what's wrong. If there's something wrong with you, this is how, not how we fix it, but, the, you know, it was very much A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I know you're not faking it. I know you're not looking for attention because there is that accusations quite a lot. Even when this campaign was launched uh, 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 just a, a couple of weeks ago, you are getting, oh, sure, it's very fashionable for celebrities to come out and say they're, they're, they have depression. Number one, I'm no celebrity. Number two, do you think it's fashionable? Do you think I want to be wearing this like a hat? No way. It's, it takes quite a lot even now for me, for me to talk about it. But yeah, it's just, it, it is, it's just, it's just one of those things. And Maggie used to just put her daughter in the car if she was worried about you yeah, poor and Izzy. drive up to Dublin and just spend time with you. And of course, like... Well, I wouldn't talk to her. I talked to the baby or the toddler at the time, Izzy, because she's, you couldn't not. She, but I think there's something very innocent and wonderful about children. Anytime years ago, even before the bad days, so as it were, if I was fed up, I'd just go home into the car of 24 nieces and nephews, meet, cuddle the children, play with play with them, have the crack and it just lift your mood. They're, they're just like little... Human antidepressants really, aren't they? They're just gorgeous. So even though she had all the skill set through her work of helping people through the toughest times in her life, the main thing she did was just be there. She knew what would work for yeah. me and what would work for me was and I, how, who could say no if a, like a toddler's landing at your door going, hey Auntie Nancy, that's what she calls me, Auntie Nancy. And she sit down and talk about run around the place in my leopard print shoes and steal my jewellery. She was like a little magpie. Um, I, I remember when I moved out of that flat a few years later, I found dodies everywhere because she'd stash them because <laughs> the dodie fairy weren't, she died them from the dodie fairy. So literally in the belly of my guitar and everything, there was dodies everywhere because she used to visit me. So I did didn't particularly want to talk to my sister, but at least she could see that I was okay or if I wasn't okay, what to do about it next. Because, of course, there was always that worry that sometimes she'd land up and I wouldn't be okay at all. Because that's a big part of the campaign, isn't it, Elaine? That Mm. friends and family play a pivotal role in getting well, getting help. I I don't want to call it success and failure Mm. because I don't think that's the right trajectory to Mm. put on something like this. But it is a a, a pivotal role that that friends and family play play, but a very difficult move to make. It is very difficult to bring it up with somebody that you love, that they have what can be, if we even the stats that you mentioned at the very start of the interview, 150,000 people with major depressive disorder, which is something that doesn't come once and leaves because some people just have kind of a situational depression or maybe every, not everyone, but a lot of people will know what it feels like. But for some people like me, it will never actually fully go away. It's, it's, it can go into remission as it were, but it will come back. And to talk to somebody about that is hugely difficult. I have another sister, Cathy, um, Years ago, years along, I'm talking maybe 20 years ago, she put it to me that maybe it could come back again and maybe it just wouldn't be once. And the first time I suppose I was diagnosed with depression, I was like, no, I'm going to be fine in a few months. I'll be grand and it'll never come back again. That's it. I'm cured. It's fine. It never. And I got really angry with her at the thought that it could come back. I I felt, are you labelling me that I'm mad, that I'm going to be a mad person for the rest of my life? So, yes, it is. It is quite um, difficult to make that suggestion because I did eat the head off Borja. I did. I ate her without salt, as the nice phrase from Cork (laughs) that we have. (laughs) And it was another 15 years almost before, um, 10 anyway, before I acknowledged that she was actually right. And I had to do something about it properly as as opposed to the things I was doing. I mean, I was in denial. I didn't want to... um, see a psychiatrist. I didn't want to admit I had a a problem that was going to last me for the rest of my life and that I'd have to deal with for the the rest of my life. I went off doing everything I could, all the different 
alternative routes, your homeopathy, sweat lodges, Buddhist meditations. I did, oh, you name it. I did absolutely every sort of alternative practice and I did all the running and the go out and have some exercise and all that, eat well, sleep well, blah, 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 blah. Did it all. And at the end of the day, it didn't really make all that much of a difference because every every so often, every year or so, I'd go down the black hole again. So obviously something else needed to be done. Yeah, and treat it like yeah. an illness because there treat is like so an much of that around, isn't there? Get out for a walk and... You know, are there right or wrong things to say to somebody? Well, there are. I mean, get out for a walk is the the least helpful thing you can say to anybody. Yes, it does. Exercise does help. It does help with depression. But if you have a major depressive disorder, you're not going to be able to get out of the bed or you're not going to be able to actually motivate yourself to get out and wash yourself. Never mind. Go out for a walk. I mean, it's really, really difficult. So, um, yeah, it, it is. I think just be there, first of all. I know it's really, really hard because... You can be like, I know I was really mean and horrible to to my family in some instances and to some of my friends as well. I didn't mean to be, but I just in order to shut them out of my life because I just wanted to be alone. I know it's very Marlene Dietrich. I want to be alone or it's a Greta Garbo, one of the two of them anyway. Um, But you you, like I just wanted to be alone. I wanted to be on my own and I, I could cope with work. I could cope with home. Anything else was too much. And you can be quite nasty. And I was quite nasty. So. I think if you can understand that it's not the person you love talking, it's the illness talking, then that's 90% of the battle and it can be hugely frustrating. I know it can. Um, but just to leave the door open and just even to check in, hi, okay, a little text, a little call, just to know that somebody's there and maybe three or four, the third or fourth time in, they might talk a little bit more about it, might be a little bit more open to talking to somebody else and, and getting professional help. And it's just to keep... Keep on swimming. That's yeah. all. Just keep there because it, it, be persistent. But it can be hugely difficult, I know. But remember that it's not that person. It's their illness. And you need to, to keep in contact, even if you're getting nothing back. What was the turning point that made you make the appointment with the psychiatrist that you admit is the hardest thing you've ever done, but one of the best things you've ever done? I think it had just happened so many times before. And I have a friend, um, I have a friend in, in, in Dublin, L. And she's friendly with my sister, Mag, as well. And I think think between the two of them, they kind of steered me in that right way because it had gotten to a point where, you know, I I, I don't want to be alarmist or cliched, but I did not see any way out. And I I did not see any way of um, any point in even existing. I just did not see the point and where, and it, it scared me because it was going down a very, very dark path. I mean, if I there was a button on the press and I could have a button to press on the table right now and if I was feeling the way I did then, I just wanted to press the button and not, not exist. And that was, for me, the only way out. And I, I terrified. It did, you know what, it didn't even terrify me so much because I was quite accepting of this is this is the life. It's, it's not what I want and I don't want to be here. It really terrified um, it terrified my family and the thoughts of hurting them to that degree, I suppose, was a wake up call. And I mean, I think anybody hearing about this black hole that you just kept going mm. down, I mean, many years of that. Obviously it happens all the exhausting. time. It happened to me a few months ago as well. It, do, it will happen periodically, but I suppose now I know I can get out of it. Whereas before, it's like if, if you're trapped down a well and you don't have a ladder, I know there's a ladder there. It might be difficult to climb, but I can climb up. And it will pass and I have gotten through it. But at that point, I'd never properly gotten 
over and that was the worst I'd ever felt. So I thought there was no no way out but to actually sit down and, and, and talk to somebody. Yes, it is an illness. And the, the stigma, being stigmatised as being the mad one off the telly. I mean, and it don't, and it's just this day, I know there's going to be people listening to this going, ah, here she is on again, banging on about it. But I mean, this, the, the, the fear of, of being judged and being labelled was horrendous for me. And it was took an awful lot out of me to do that. But I think that's when I admitted it publicly and I admitted it to myself. I went to see a psychiatrist and it was the best thing I ever did because not to put a label on it, but you put a label on it. Mm. And it was like, some people are just born melancholy in such a way. It might be a, a trite way of putting it. Some people's levels, maybe everyone's at level five. If they're happy, they go to a level, level 10, ecstatic. If they're miserable, they go to a level one or two. I'm kind of, I exist at the level two. Whereas, I mean, I'm a few steps backwards and the, the, the kind of happiness stakes anyway. So that's the best way I can describe it to you. And a lot of people are born that way. Yeah, dysphoria was yeah, the, the word you, you, dysphoria. you used. I'd never heard that before. Yeah, well, I know some people say it's just a symptom of depression, but that's what I use to diagnose what I oh, I kind of am. It's dysphoria. It's the opposite of euphoria, basically, isn't it? Yeah, and that everybody is different. But I love what you said about the ladder, that you, yeah. you have that now. Yeah, and you can get the tools and the skills. And I think once thing you know that you can actually climb that ladder once, you know you can do it again. So even, and I have several times since felt down down that awful black well of despair but I know there is a ladder there and I can't climb out of it might take me a while might take me longer than usual but I will be able to do it and once you know that and you've and, and seeing the, the mental health professionals to let me know that's there um, I don't think I'll ever be scared again or I won't scare my family again as much as I did back then well, I just commend you. I think it's not easy to be open and honest about a personal struggle and you don't have to do this um, and you've chosen to do it. So thank you so much for talking so openly and honestly about it. At all, but it's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of parents out there. There's a lot of brothers and sisters out there who are despairing because they don't know what to do to help their loved one. And I I, I can advise on how to help, help for people to help themselves as much as I can. But I think it's it's important for people out there to know that the person they love, it's not really them at the moment. It's their illness and just hang on in there. Amazing. Well, if people want to find out a bit more, that book, The Little Book of Big Conversations, it gives starting points of what to say and how to say it. And it's obviously written by experts. So you'll have a little bit of confidence in that. And those YouTube videos of Elaine with her gorgeous sister, Maggie, go to janssenwithme.ie forward slash depression. Elaine Crowley, thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, I chat to the psychotherapist behind the book, Win, about how the mental skills applied in sports can be adapted for success in everyday life. Alive and kicking on Newstalk. Alive and kicking on Newstalk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, what habits can we instill that will make us happier, healthier? Psychotherapist Jason Brennan investigates these ideas in his new book, Win, Proven Strategies for Success in Sports, Life and Mental Health, co-written with Brent Pope. He joins me in studio now. Jason, good morning. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Claire. And I'm obsessed with this kind of term performance at the minute because I think we put athletes in one special box but there are lessons for all of us to learn we're all looking to perform at our best Oh absolutely and you know in a way it's it's easy to see sports people performing because they're measured very intently you know in terms of uh, their skills their talent what they're able to achieve but performance is, is across the board it's everywhere in life 
whether it's in work, whether it's in your relationships, would you believe it? You know, how you're performing well there, you know, in terms of how you're supporting each other. But we can take a lot of what happens, say, in the sports field and transfer it into other parts of life because it is very successful. And some of the stuff is, is actually quite basic. You know, it's very simple stuff that they do repeatedly over and over again that if we bring to other places, it increases our performance. They always have the target, don't they? The event, the match, whatever it is. So how do we bring that into our everyday? Yeah, well, the, the good thing there about, the, you know, the, the sports people is, is they have these goals. They have these set goals that they, that they work to. And actually creating goals is a mental skill. So, so the, the book is very much about mental skills for mental health. So in sports, it's very obvious if, you know, if you want to get faster or, you know, perform better at each match in terms of, let's say, uh, if it's rugby, it could be tackles. You know, if, if, you, if it's uh, racing, how fast are you running? So it's very, very obvious the type of goals that they can set and they can tick off every week in terms of their training and they love it. Uh, this is what's known as U-stress. So, so sports people love U-stress, E-U-stress, which is E-U is uh, ancient Greek for well or good. So it's setting little challenges for themselves every day, every week. And then the big one, of course, at the end of the end of the week, you know, maybe a test. You know, we, we got the the, the world uh, soccer on now, and everybody's glued to that. So that's that's a big that's a big goal. But setting goals in life is is super important too. Uh, a, a variety of goals, and some of them can be quite straightforward. So that the mental skill of setting goals is, is super important. Whether it's um, what I talk about a lot nowadays is setting wellness goals every single day. So what are you going to do to drive your wellness every single day? It doesn't have to be massive. You don't have to sign up for a, a marathon. You can if you want, but uh, you don't have to. But what are you doing to help you perform better in life, take care of yourself better, uh, manage your world better? So what would that look like? Say I'm saying I want to be a better wife. I want to be a better mum. Where do the wellness goals come into that? Well, often when I'm working with people in, in this space in terms of the goals, I, I try to drill down to find out why do they want to do that? What's, what's sitting behind it? What's, what's the purpose? What's the value that they want to drive? Because once they connect to that inner value, it makes it much easier than to set up the, the, the different goals. Um, what can happen is life can take over. So we can get so busy as a mom, uh, as a wife, as a husband, as a dad, and, and of course in work, that we, we forget some of the core things that we want to drive. So it's about uh, exploring what do I want to improve in, what area do I want to improve in? How can I do that realistically? Right? What, what are the small things I can do? So obviously the book is called Win. So what are the small wins I can get on the board straight away? For example, you know, maybe it's having a conversation, so, something as simple as that. Uh, maybe it's uh, you know, if you think about relationships, how are we spending our time and are we missing out on quality time, which is one of our kind of a, our love languages, you know, or how are we going to get more of that into our life? And, and then it's about kind of actually booking it in. <laughs> it's that simple. The, the, you know, the psychology of writing something down makes a big difference. I think we're probably 80% more likely to achieve a goal if you write it down as opposed to just talk about it or think about it. So same deal. If you want to kind of invest our time differently because time is time, we do need to book it in and create that habit. And again, you know, some of the research says if, if you do something about 10 times, you're more likely to keep on doing it, right? So if you want to book in those kind of little little times to spend together, um, book it in for 10 weeks, One, you know, half an hour every, I don't know, it could be Monday morning if you want to do it, it could be Saturday morning for 10 weeks and then you're more likely to keep that habit going. Yeah, whether that's, Making sure you spend half an hour with the kids one on one, whether it's reading the bedtime story or playing a game or fitting in date night, 
once a week for 10 weeks and then see how you feel at the end of it. Or like you said, the conversation really stuck out to me because it starts with the check in and then it starts with the conversation. I'd like to spend more time together. I'd like if you did a pickup or whatever it is. Until you know what your needs are, you can't start working towards getting them met. That's right. And and it's lovely. It's a win-win situation there, right? So if I sit down and I think, oh, I want to spend more time with my wife. Well, why? Because I love her and I miss her. And we're so busy, we don't spend enough time together. If I sit down and tell her that, I mean, how does that feel? You know, it feels great to receive that compliment. It feels great to receive that recognition. And therefore, as a team, you can work better at that in terms of, you know, achieving that goal of spending more time together. Yeah, I saw a clip online of Carl Henry and he was talking about getting his clients to talk about their why and how one of the clients had said, my why is I want to walk my daughter. The reason to keep up my fitness was to walk my daughter down the aisle and his daughter's four. <laughs> so he's thinking of like long term health down the line and you can see how when, I don't know, the alarm goes off or he's to put the gym bag into the back of the car and he's thinking, oh no, I'm exhausted because that's what we all do. He just pushes through to that why. No, I want to be as healthy as possible for as long as possible. So it's about drilling down into that. that Absolutely. And, and he's, he's connecting with, you know, an inner purpose there in a way. You know, he loves his daughter. His daughter's about only four, I think you said, but he's looking forward to walking her down the aisle and being around and being healthy to do that. So he's really joined the dots there uh, for kind of long-term health and well-being because he's driving that purpose. And of course, that then, when, when he needs to go out every day and go for a walk, and it's raining outside or it's cold outside, then he needs to practice uh, one of the skills that I I came across with uh, all elite sports people is discipline. So I'm still going to get out and do it, even though it's cold and wet, because I want to be around for a long time and I want to be there to walk my daughter down down the aisle. I mean, how lovely and how, how clear he has that in himself. But people will say, oh, look, it's all well and good for sports people. Haven't they a whole team of people behind them? Nutritionists and psychotherapists and performance psychologists and a whole team there. And even if you think of the premiership footballers, they hop into their Maseratis and off they go. And is that just an excuse or is it easier when you have a team of people helping you if that's your job? Yeah, you know, if, if, if somebody's thinking that, they're probably talking themselves out of something as opposed to into something, right? And now the elite sports people didn't always have those teams, right? They, they might have them now, but they've gotten themselves there. So at some stage, they had to kind of look within to find that kind of drive, which again is another skill that I came across that was common with everybody. Um, so, so sure enough, they do, the elite sports people do have these professionals there to keep them at their top performance because they need them, right? Um but we all have teams. We just might not call them that. You know, so we're all parts of groups, whether it's uh, family, friends, colleagues. These are the people that can actually nourish us. And, you know, if we share some of the goals that we're trying to achieve, achieve they, can, they can back us up. But the other side is, if, if we're taking care of ourselves um, and we notice that there's something that we need to achieve something, we can, we can reach out and, and find it. It's usually there somewhere, whether it's paying a professional ourselves or finding somebody who wants to help us. Because a lot of, um, if you think about, uh, say, sports psychologists, you know, often people who are training as sports psychologists are looking for people to work with for free, right? So that they can get their hours in. That's the same with a physio. That's the same with a nutritionist. So often if you, if you kind of go to some of the universities, you'll find people are looking to help you because they'll get something back. So it's about having that, if you will, that vision and uh, finding that support to make it work. 
And it's all well and good for us to say, oh, look, you know, isn't it great for a premiership footballer? Isn't it great for an Olympian? But, you know, all that glitters isn't gold because we do hear about the depression rates when careers come to an end because they can't last for forever. So it, 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 the grass is always greener, as they say. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, they're human, right? So all humans have their ups and downs. It doesn't matter who you are. Um, but certainly, it, it, even though it might look great on the outside, there are times when it's very, very challenging. And, and in particular in sports, you know, if you have an injury, it could be career ending injury. So all, all of a sudden you're at the, you're the, you know, the top of the hill and then you're at the bottom. So how do you how to take care of that? Or if you've you've trained for four years to be in the the Olympics, you get there, you're not feeling well, and you don't do well. H- how do you how do you pick yourself up? So, uh, sports people have a lot of these stories of challenges, uh, failures, and disappointments. The most successful sports people that I've come across and interviewed are able to reframe that. They're able to take something from that. They don't just kind of stay down. They they hook into a, a kind of an inner sense of determination to figure out okay what can I do next and I work with a lot of uh, sports people whose career have has ended and and they can kind of really struggle to figure out what to do next because they've identified themselves with this role for for years decades even but like all of us humans we've got multiple skills so it's just about tapping into what are those multiple skills whether whether it's leadership whether it's um, relational connecting people teamwork so these are skills that are transferable across the board uh, for everybody so non non sports people if you want to call them that which most of us you know would fit into there's lots of skills that we can figure out lots of strengths that we can figure out in ourselves um, without kind of comparing ourselves to these elite athletes and that's a really important question for everybody to ask who am I outside of what I do who am I and what do I want why is that so tricky or challenging to find the answers to it's a lovely question and most of us don't slow down to ask that and in the book, I have uh, um, a symbol that uh, when you see the symbol, you're supposed to put the book down and think about what you just read and apply it to yourself. So, so you know, this book might help you get fitter uh, and win a race, but it's not a race to read the book. So if you, if you want to get the depth, and this is one of the reasons I, I became a psychotherapist in the first place, uh, humans are super interesting. We're super complex as well, right? And everybody's unique and different. But we get so busy doing the do or performing different roles, whether it's mom or uh, friend or sibling or daughter, whatever it might be, we, we may not take the time to slow down and figure out, okay, who am I? What are, what are my strengths? What do I want to bring to the world, for example? And drive that purpose. Because when we do that, we become more successful. We win more often, if you will. And one of the things I, I looked at in terms of uh, the, the, the name of the book Win is often seen as a, uh, a past thing. So you've won something. So I'm going to go out and win that game. So it's, it's like a noun. Whereas actually winning is a verb. And it's successful behavior is repeated over time. So if you know what you're good at, you can keep on repeating that and grow through that. Equally, if you're not so great at something, but you want to get better, then you find out how to do that. You build that habit in. And every time you do that, you're driving your inner purpose and you're winning all the time. And how many people do you think will see that symbol and flick on and say, oh, I'll do that later? Why do we do that? I've done it myself in books that have a journal part and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. We're always just dying for the answers and we keep reading on, take the information. But there's crazy stats about personal development books and how people read them and read them. But it's the action that really makes the difference at the end of the day. Yeah, it's... um 
you know, and, and, and the symbols in there are lots, so you don't have to do it every single time. But if, <laughs> it just keeps coming back to home. <laughs> that's right. It'll, it'll eventually catch you where you go, oh, I'm actually going to do it this time and put it down. Um, and that's okay. You know, you don't have to be, we don't have to be perfect, right? We actually, there's no such thing as perfection in, in nature. So if, if we just get a little bit, out, to me, that's the purpose of the book. You, you, it, there's a lot in there. You don't have to try everything, actually, because it'll probably burn you out trying everything. But find what resonates with you. And if it gets you to slow down and pause and just uh, think a little bit deeper, then job done, right? Because we do live in a very fast-paced society. We are getting a bit overstimulated nowadays with technology. Sometimes we just need to switch off and kind of have some me time, right? So the, the book is encouraged to bring that me time out a bit more often. And, and that often kind of settles a lot of other things that are going on in the world. So if somebody's feeling a bit anxious or a bit low, if you start to kind of connect more with yourself and then you can move that into connecting with your place in the world, right? That can bring a lot of depth and a lot of peace, peace of mind, uh, and and that's a great place to kind of build more on. Yeah, and that's the winning, isn't it? And that's the one of the terms that's thrown about so much at, at the moment is like living your best life. And I think people start to see that as something that's outside of themselves. And it's very easy on social media to think that, that you need the big house and the big car and yeah. the big following. And it's not really about that. No, because that's going to cause, in. absolutely, it's going to cause more demands and uh, sometimes, unfortunately, uh, fe- feed mental health issues because we're, we're striving to be something that we may not even want, you know, but we, we think we should have. Um, I remember w- when I was writing the book, it made me reflect when I, was a, when I was a kid growing up here in Dublin and me and a group of mates, every time we, we met, we'd say, are you winning? You know, that phrase seems to have kind of disappeared. Um, but we'd always say yes, I- even though we might say yeah, but school's not so good or something's happening at home. We'd always say yes or winning, which means we didn't realise, but we're driving positive psychology just by saying that. So winning, again, is, is just by figuring out what the success means for me at a deep level and how can I bring that more and more into my kind of daily routines and even in a small way. You know, I want to, if, if I'm being a bit um, more irritated, I notice I'm being a bit more irritated. Well, I, I don't want to be doing that. So I'm going to work on being a bit calmer and a bit softer in terms of how I'm talking to whoever it might be. Well, the book is called Win, Proven Strategies for Success in Sport, Life and Mental Health. It's written by Jason Brennan and Brent Pope. Jason, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and Hugo De Silva-Scott who was on sound and thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna Sunday morning at 8 with Benelin on News Talk.